following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody this morning. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, as we continue in our series here, Kingdom Portraits. Matthew chapter 20. Well, one of my favorite composers is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. I often either have him or Bach playing in the background whenever I'm reading or studying or doing some sermon prep, but the story of Mozart is a fascinating one. He was a child prodigy who was seen as being divinely gifted to effortlessly compose and perform works of genius. But tragically, at age 35, he died, which led to all sorts of speculation of his early demise. Indeed, by the, early, or by the 1800s, rumors began to circulate that he did not die of natural causes, but was rather poisoned by a fellow composer and alleged bitter rival named Antonio Salieri. These rumors became so widespread that they inspired dramatic plays and operas. Now, most historians have dismissed the notion that Salieri killed Mozart and much evidence exists to suggest that Mozart and Salieri were not actually enemies, but colleagues, if not friends. Nevertheless, the legend of this bitter rivalry between Mozart and Salieri persisted into the 20th century and culminated with an award-winning play and its Academy Award-winning film adaptation. And while the film and the play were obviously fictional, they give a fascinating depiction of how the seeds of jealousy can corrupt and distort a soul beyond recognition. Because in the play, Salieri, as a child, makes a deal with God. He says, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music. Oh, and be celebrated myself. Make me famous throughout the world. And in return, he says, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deep humility every hour of my life. Salieri believes that God has accepted this deal because he eventually has the opportunity to move to Vienna and become the chief composer to the emperor of Austria. All was well in the world for Salieri until Mozart arrives on the scene. At first, he's eager to welcome this musical genius and celebrate his music, but he quickly becomes disillusioned by the image and debauchery of Mozart, who fails to appreciate the uniqueness of his musical gift. Nevertheless, when Salieri hears Mozart's music for the first time, he's conflicted in his spirit. He says, this was music I had never heard, filled with such longing, such unfulfillable longing. It seemed to me I was hearing the voice of God. But why? Why would God choose an obscene child to be his instrument? This is the moment that envy enters into Salieri's heart. He can't understand why when he has sworn off every vice and has lived such an upstanding life, he has not been blessed with such talent. And here is, in his mind, a complete buffoon of a man who seems to have been touched by God with a supernatural gift. It just didn't seem fair. And Mozart's continued success and rise to fame only further to breed resentment in Salieri's heart. He asks why God would choose Mozart to teach me lessons in humility. He confesses, my heart was filling up with such hatred for that little man. For the first time in my life, he says, I began to know really violent thoughts. Indeed, he begins to use his position in the court to sabotage Mozart's career. But even still, he cannot help but admire the glory of Mozart's music, leading him to pronounce, There is no God of mercy, just the God of torture. 
Because despite all his religious devotion and good works, Salieri feels like God has rejected him and has shown his favor instead to the intemperate Mozart, leading Salieri to ultimately reject God and self-righteously declare, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. Because you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. Salieri proceeds to remove a crucifix from the wall and burn it in the fireplace and then concocts a plan to kill Mozart. And in so doing, Salieri says, I could triumph over God. And God would be forced to listen and would be powerless to stop it. Indeed, he says, I for once in the end will be laughing at him. Holy cow, right? Man, now perhaps you would never dare utter such blasphemy out loud, but have you ever wrestled with the will of God in your own life? Have you ever felt like he was being unfair to you, like he was holding out on you, not giving you what you deserve? Meanwhile, you see others around you getting all kinds of opportunities that you wish you had. You even notice that they're not as devoted as you are in your relationship with God. So why do they get the promotion? Why do they get the marriage proposal? Why do they get the picture-perfect family? Why do they prosper with good health and financial resources? Why are they so popular? Why are you so good to them, God, and not to me? After all I've done, after all I've given up, after all I've renounced to follow you, and what do I get in return? Where's my reward? It's just not fair. You know, if we're honest, the tendency toward that mindset exists in us all. But friends, that's a dangerous mindset to have. And Jesus addresses it full on in our parable this morning. Look at Matthew 20, verse 1. It says this, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last have only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, Jesus says, and the first 
last. A parable most of us are familiar with, but nevertheless, it is unsettling no matter how many times you read it. I mean, Jesus has set us up with this shocking ending because truth be told, don't you sympathize a little with the first set of workers? I mean, it says they have been working since early in the morning. Most likely that means they started around 6 a.m. And they worked all day. But those hired at the 11th hour, which would have been around 5 p.m. in Jewish culture, because that's, that's uh, the end of the day was considered, or excuse me, uh, the, the 11th hour was considered uh, the, the, the end of the day there. And, uh, and, and the day started at sundown. A new day started at sundown. So that's what's going on here. 5 p.m. and new day is starting. They only work about an hour. They get the same exact amount as the people who've been working since 6 in the morning. I mean, come on. The union reps would have been all over that guy. In fact, try this at home today with your kids, all right? Make one work harder and longer and then let another one come in at the last minute and then give them both the same allowance or special treat And what are the three words you know you are going to hear? That's not fair. And that's exactly the response Jesus wants to pull out of us here. And we'll deal with that charge in the moment because as we saw throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is always getting past the surface to reveal what's in our heart. And that's what Jesus is doing here. But first, remember what the purpose of these kingdom parables in Matthew is. Jesus is giving us little snapshots of what the kingdom is like. And here he is comparing the kingdom to a generous ruler or master. But notice the last line of the parable. It says, so the last will be first and the first last. Likewise, in the verse right before he told this parable, Jesus said virtually the same thing to his disciples in Matthew 19.30. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. That's called an inclusio, which means that a section of scripture begins and ends in the same way and thereby reveals the theme of this section of scripture. In other words, Jesus has given us something like a parable sandwich today, hitting us with the same idea both immediately before and after the story to show us the parable's meaning. He says, if you want to know what the kingdom is like, here it is. I'm turning everything upside down. He says, forget all the structures you know for how to get ahead in life and all the things that you think you need to have a good life. Money, fame, sex, success, indulgence, power grabs, domination. No, he says, entry into the kingdom is going to look very different. It's going to be marked by poverty, grief, meekness, righteousness, purity, peace, persecution. In other words, it's for the losers. And that's what he says here. The first will be last and the last first. Now in this context, Jesus' point isn't that all the winners in this life are going to be at the bottom of the kingdom or that all the losers of this life are going to be at the top of the kingdom. Why? Because we see in this parable, the first to work don't receive less pay than the last to work. Neither do the last to work receive more pay than the first to work. In other words, the point for Jesus here is not that the last are necessarily going to be greater than the first, but rather that no one has an upper hand when it comes to the kingdom of God. As the same goes the foot at the cross is level ground everyone is equal here and that's the point of this parable Jesus wants all of us to understand this first of all 
Entry into the kingdom is not by wealth or power. Entry into the kingdom is not by wealth or power. See, leading into this parable, Jesus has an encounter with a young man who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. I mean, this dude is loaded. Like, he probably flew in on a private jet, right? He's getting ready to set sail on a yacht bigger than your house. He's got like a menagerie full of exotic animals. I mean, this guy's got it all, right? And he comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? When Jesus tells him to keep the commandments, instead of admitting that he, like all of us, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he says, oh, all these I have kept. Like, I'm pretty great, Jesus, right? What still do I lack? And Jesus said to him, well, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And it says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had many possessions. Which leads Jesus to say to his disciples in verse 23, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus say something like this? Was he suggesting that rich people will not be in heaven? No, in fact, we know of many of his disciples being wealthy, including Joseph of Arimathea, who let Jesus borrow his tomb for a couple of days because that's all Jesus needed it for, right? And then there were women like Joanna and Susanna who helped fund Jesus' ministry. But, but he said, what Jesus is saying here is not that it's impossible for a rich man to get in, but that it is difficult. Why? Because the tendency of the human heart is to love our stuff and to trust our stuff instead of loving and trusting God. Indeed, the young man walked away sad. Why? Because his hope was in his stuff. As one pastor put it, he took a good thing and he made it a bad thing because he turned it into a God thing. But Jesus's words here were completely overturning the common Jewish understanding of who would be great in the kingdom. See, a common belief back then was that if someone was wealthy, they were highly favored by God, which means they must have done something right. That's why Jesus's words would have been shocking Indeed, listen to what his disciples say in response in verse 25. It says, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, again, Jesus isn't saying that a rich person can't get into heaven, which, by the way, is good news for us all, because as we've seen, every single one of us would have been considered wealthy in Jesus' day. He's saying our wealth our status, our power, our influence can do nothing to earn us a spot in the kingdom. If anything, they're working against you because you will always have the tendency to trust in them instead of surrendering to God and using these resources for his glory and the good of your neighbor. That's why Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve God in money. And that's what we see going on in this parable. Notice the employee's standing was not based on the amount of money exchanged or the amount of effort put in. Indeed, these were day laborers, which means they would have been at the bottom of the social ladder in Jesus' day. At least if you were a household servant, you were guaranteed certain rights under the Mosaic law. The landowner or the master was obligated to provide you with food, shelter, clothing, other necessities, regardless of the amount of labor he assigned you in the day. So you didn't have to fear going hungry or walking around naked or being exposed to the elements. Oh, but not the day laborer. 
See, the day laborer had no such protections. If he didn't work that day, he wasn't going to eat. His family was going to suffer. And so day laborers would often gather in certain locations in the village or the city in the hope that someone from a large property would hire them for the day. And that's what's going on here. The master does not owe them any labor. He has his own servants. But the master of the parable is described as being generous. He sees their need, and he takes pity on them, telling them to come work for him, and he will pay them a denarius, which was a good daily wage back then. Listen, he wasn't impressed with how, how they looked or what, what, how much skill they had or, or, or what they could contribute no, it was their need that drew him to them and that they recognized their need. Remember what Jesus told us? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have the eyes to see that they have nothing to offer and recognize their need for him. And that's what Jesus is saying to you this morning. Quit trying to clean yourself up first or to prove your worth before you come to him. My friend, you could not scrub long or hard enough to clean up your mess. And you can't work hard enough to earn your spot. Because the entry into the kingdom starts with saying, I'm not good enough. I can't do enough. I need you, Jesus. That's why earlier in this section of Matthew, just before the scene with the rich young ruler, Jesus insisted on this. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Why does the kingdom belong to those who are like children? It's because just as children know their survival depends not on them, but on those who care for them, so too do we recognize we cannot save ourselves. No, we need a savior. See, the kingdom is not for the high and mighty. It's for those who recognize they are weak and lowly. Listen, your money and labor and connections and power offer you no advantage. In the end, the rich and the poor, the strong and the lame, the popular and the outcast have the same need and they have the same offer if they will only reach out and receive it. So entry into the kingdom is not through wealth or power, but we also see this, that entry into the kingdom is not through outward religious devotion. Entry into the kingdom is not through outward religious devotion. It's hard to read this parable and not hear the voice of the scribes and the Pharisees and other self-righteous religious leaders who are always touting themselves as morally superior to everyone else and who self-righteously think that God loves them because of all the good stuff that they're doing. See, they're not doing good stuff because they love God. Like the fictional Salieri, they think by doing good stuff, they've put God in their debt. But they don't actually love God. Indeed, when they come face to face with God through his son Jesus, they hate him so much, they want to crucify him. See, it's no accident that in the very next passage immediately following this parable, Jesus is warning his disciples once again about the scribes. He says this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. See, they didn't like Jesus coming in and messing with their system. They didn't like that he was spending time with the sinners and the tax collectors. They didn't like the guise of their false religion being stripped away to expose their corrupt hearts. They didn't like admitting that they were just as much in need of forgiveness as the big-time sinners. And so they grumbled 
constantly about Jesus and his mercy to the unclean and the outcast and the reprobates. I mean, they were the righteous ones. They were the hard workers, the diligent in their duties out in the vineyard all day long. They deserved God's favor. Not these sinners begging for mercy at the end of the shift. And that's what we see in our parable. What does it say was the response of the initial laborers when they find out that they get paid the same as the rest of the workers? It says in verse 11, they grumbled at the master of the house. Now, this was not a random choice of words for Jesus here. Grumble is a loaded term in Scripture that is seen as defiance against God. And this goes all the way back to the book of Exodus in chapter 16, verse 2. It says that after God delivered his people out of Egypt, listen to their response. It says the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly. I mean, do you see the arrogance here? It's like, did you forget you were slaves in the land of Egypt? Did you forget the mighty things God has done to deliver you, and you're sitting there whining and complaining? Nevertheless, God in his patience and loving kindness provides manna and quail for his people to eat, but even still, the people complain, and they complain until God finally comes in judgment. Numbers 11.1 says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And the reason for this is because of what their grumbling reveals. God says here that their grumbling shows you have rejected the Lord who is among you and wept before him saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? See, even as God in love had rescued and redeemed his people, miraculously working for their salvation and their good, his people responded not in gratitude, but resentment. Friends, how often is that true for us today? Listen, the fastest way to throw a damp towel on the work of God is to start grumbling. That's why as a youth pastor, whenever I took students on a retreat or mission trip, one of our cardinal rules was absolutely no whining, or we'd have to call you a whambulance, all right? Because you know how this works. Once one person starts complaining, that leads to another person to start complaining. And before you know it, everybody's complaining, and nobody's having a good time. But more importantly, nobody's listening to the Lord. And it's the same in the church, isn't it? Man, one person has a problem with one little thing and starts whispering in another's ear. And before you know it, people are taking sides, eyes are being taken off of Jesus, and whatever good the Spirit is doing is quenched. That's why Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. James 5, 9 likewise says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Friends, God takes grumbling very seriously. Because he says it reveals a hardened heart. 
and gives our enemy Satan a foothold and interrupts God's work among his people. And that's what's true in any situation, but it's especially egregious here in this parable because notice the reason they are grumbling. It's not because they have been robbed. It's not because they have been mistreated. It's not because they have been taken advantage of. No, they have been given exactly what they were promised, a generous daily wage. So why are they so mad? Not because they were not recipients of the master's generosity, but because they feel like others received more of his generosity, which leads the master to ask this question, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, that's a nice, smooth rendering of the Greek to help us English speakers get the meaning of what the master says here. But the literal translation is not, do you begrudge my generosity? But rather, is your eye bad because I am good? You'll remember from the Sermon on the Mount, this was a figure of speech in Jewish culture. Having a good eye meant that you were a moral person. In particular, it meant you were a generous person, someone who cared about the needs of people around you. In contrast, having an evil eye meant that you were immoral, you were stingy, you were greedy, you had no concern for your neighbor. And that's how the master rebukes them here, asking, are you really coming after me for my good eye, my desire to help my neighbor? Be careful, my friend, because that suggests that you have an evil eye if you resent me for being generous. Instead, be thankful for the generosity I've bestowed upon you. Enjoy it. Don't resent that I was likewise generous to others. But it's hard. That's hard for a self-righteous religious person. They think, man, I worked hard for this. I earned this. Look at all I've done. I deserve this. They don't realize that they don't deserve any of this, that they are just as much indebted to the master as the least of these. But wait a second, you might be thinking, I mean, didn't the first set of laborers, didn't they earn their wage? Didn't they deserve that payment? Yeah, in a sense, but not because of how hard they worked, but rather because of the master's faithfulness to to his promise, which leads to our last point this morning. Entry into the kingdom is not by merit, but by grace alone. We see this point most obviously in in, in, in that um, every even the workers who who only labor for an hour are generously given a denarius. Clearly, this is well beyond what they deserve to make. As we've already seen, this was the typical payment for a full day's work. That means anyone who worked short of a full day was shown grace. They were given something they did not earn or deserve. It was simply the kindness of the boss. So, aha, you say. The first workers were right to object then. They did put in a full day's labor. So they were given what they had a right to. They did earn it. They did deserve it. Oh, but not so fast. Because remember the nature of a day laborer. These were vulnerable workers in society, not guaranteed day-to-day employment, either because they were so poor they they didn't own any land to farm on, or the land they owned and the crops they grew were so minimal that they needed additional work to provide for their family. And so as described in this parable, they'd line up somewhere in the hopes that someone would hire them for the day so they could make some money. That's why when the master in the parable returns to that spot throughout the day and asks, Why do you stand here idle all day? They respond, because no one has hired us. 
In other words, these workers weren't loafing around. They weren't lazy louses. They aren't man-boy losers living in their mama's basement playing Call of Duty or World of Warcraft all day, refusing to grow up and get a job. These are people who wanted a job but had no means of gainful employment. Their survival depends upon someone selecting them first thing in the morning to do some work. But then, if they're not picked, they continue to wait throughout the day in the hopes that at some point there might be a last-minute chance to at least earn a little bit of cash so they can at least meet some of the needs of their family that day. Friends, this is the picture of poverty in the Bible. Not knowing where your next meal is coming from, leading Jesus to teach us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Do you see then? Even those hired first thing in the morning were only there by grace. The master was under no obligation to hire them. First of all, he had his own servants and could have just made do with them. But instead, he hired these workers because he took pity on them. He could have just as easily chosen others, but he provided them with the opportunity to work and to receive a day's wage. And they were thrilled by such an opportunity, a guarantee that they and their family could rest easy that night. They would have their daily bread. They only begrudged the master when he showed the same kindness to others later in the day. And while we can initially sympathize with their attitude a little bit, upon further reflection, we realize that in some ways, they actually received more grace. Because put yourself now in the other worker's shoes for a moment. After that first meeting, when, when the initial crew was selected, imagine being one of the workers left behind. Your hopes dashed of providing for your family that day. What a relief it must have been to see the master return every few hours, bringing on a few more. But still, as the day progressed, you knew that even if the master came back and selected you at this point, you still would not make enough that day to meet your family's needs. So imagine what joy would have flooded your heart when in his generosity, the master of the vineyard gave you a full day's wage. Thank God, you'd think, my children will not go to bed hungry tonight. See, the first workers didn't have to worry about that all day. They were guaranteed from the start of the day that they would have a day's provision. But those last workers lived in fear and dread all day, wondering how they were going to make ends meet. That's why the master says, do you begrudge my generosity? Is your eye evil? In other words, do you not realize that I was also generous to you you needed my generosity just as much as them. So are you now mad that I would likewise be generous to others? Friends, that's all our story. You might look around and think of yourself as being better than others. Yeah, you might think, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not as big of a sinner as that guy. I mean, all things considered, I'm pretty good. I grew up in church, I never slept around, I don't drink, I don't cuss, I never killed anybody, I work hard, I'm a productive member of society. Sure, I know I'm not perfect, but aren't I good enough for the kingdom? I mean, come on. I get why Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, or Adolf Hitler, or Osama bin Laden deserve to go to hell, but me? Me? And Jesus says, yes, you. 
No doubt, some have descended into the depths of depravity more than others. But listen, all of us are depraved. It's kind of like this jug of water here. What if I offered this to you on a hot summer's day? Just pretend it doesn't have preacher slobber in it right now, okay? But if I offered you some fresh water on a hot summer day, wouldn't you want it? But what if before I gave it to you, I said, oh, but just one small thing. It's not really that big of a deal. Really, I hesitate to even bring it up, but it does have a little bit of poison in it. Just just a little bit. Are you still going to want it? Like, would you even really care if it was 90% or 50% or 25% poison? What if I could guarantee you it is less than 10% poison? That's pretty good. It's 90% water, only 10% poison. What if it's less than 5%? What if it's less than 0.0001% poison? Even with that amount, you wouldn't drink it, would you? Why? Because no matter how little poison is in there, it's still poisonous and it's still deadly. Friend, it's the same with you. I don't care what values you were raised with. I don't care how many generations of your family love the Lord. I don't care if you were raised in the church. It doesn't even matter if you've avoided the big sins of your peers. Listen, you still got poison in you. So congratulations if you've never had a porn addiction. You've still lusted in your heart. You've never knocked over a 7-Eleven. Fantastic. You've still coveted. You've still experienced greed and stinginess and jealousy. So you're not an axe murderer. Whoop-de-doo. Because you know you were tempted to take out Cousin Benny last year at Thanksgiving. There's poison in you. That's why the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. And why it says that even your best good deeds are like filthy rags because even they are tainted by your sin. Listen, I don't care how good you think you are. No one deserves the kingdom of God. And if you think you do or that you at least deserve it more than others, that only reveals you don't get it, that you have an evil eye because the wage of sin is death. That's the only thing that we deserve. If any of us make it in, it is only the kindness of our master, King Jesus, who in his generosity gave up all he had to pay our way into the kingdom, bearing the punishment we deserve by dying on the cross for our sins. Friends, that's the only way that we get in. We can never be good enough. We can never work hard enough. We could never undo enough. It is only by trusting in the one who has done more than enough for us. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There is no room for boasting in the kingdom of God. You don't deserve to be here. It's God's gift to you. He could have just as easily given it to another. But if you believe this morning, he has given it to you. You did nothing to earn this. In fact, if you tried to merit it, all you did was disqualify yourself from obtaining it. Because a gift, by definition, is to be freely received, not earned. Nevertheless, the attitude of the first workers in this parable 
so easily creeps into our hearts, doesn't it? So as we close out today, let's ask ourselves some questions to examine our heart before the Lord in light of the parable this morning. The first question I want you to ask yourself is this. Do I tend to maximize other people's sin even as I minimize my own? Do I tend to maximize other people's sin even as I minimize my own? See, it's always easy to see where other people fall short and seem unworthy of God's love and gloss over our own shortcomings. But when we recognize that we too deserve God's wrath, that makes us more inclined to walk in humility before God and to show compassion toward others because we realize I'm just as much in need of God's mercy as anyone else. Number two, if someone genuinely repents of his sin and trusts in Christ, do I rejoice in his salvation or do I cynically begrudge him for his conversion? This is not to say that one should not test every spirit or examine a life for genuine fruit as the scriptures tell us to do or that there are not certain consequences for sin in this life. But listen, when a murderer or a thief or an adulterer or a gossip or a liar repents and they believe do you continue to hold their sin over their head in condemnation? Or recognizing your own need for God's grace, do you embrace him or her as your brother or sister in Christ? You know, I once knew someone who was outraged by a passage like this one in a Sunday school class exclaiming, Are you telling me that if a serial killer were to receive Christ on his deathbed, I would have to stand next to him in heaven? And the teacher responded, well, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And her response is, well, I don't know if I could worship a God who does that. Friend, if that's your attitude toward a repentant sinner, then perhaps you yourself are not a repentant sinner. Because if there's not room for that person in the kingdom of God, there's not room for any of us. Third question, when I am wronged, do I play the role of self-righteous martyr or do I forgive as I have been forgiven? When I'm wrong, do I play the role of self-righteous martyr or do I forgive as I have been forgiven? As we talked about last week, truly pardon sinners, pardon sinners. Why? Because if my debt against the holy God was infinite and God himself was willing to pay my debt and bestow upon me riches untold, how could I withhold forgiveness for a finite debt? See, when I realize that all of us are in debt and in need of mercy and grace, it's hard for me to view someone as my enemy. Instead, I begin to pity that person and desire for them to be reconciled to God and, if possible, to myself. Because I begin to recognize that while I may be the offended party in this case, there have been many times in which I have been the offending party in various relationships with people around me, but most importantly, in my relationship with God. And if he has been so generous to forgive me, how could I withhold that generosity from others? Fourth question, in my prayer life and in my witness, have I given up on someone or counted him or her out of the kingdom of God? Have I given up on someone? Friend, do not grow weary in praying for and sharing the gospel with that prodigal son or daughter that wayward brother or sister, that friend or neighbor or coworker who seems so hardened to the grace of God because until they take their last breath, it is never too late. The thief on the cross next to Jesus who repented and believed at virtually the last minute of his life was told by Jesus, today 
today you will be with me in paradise. Just like the worker in the parable who came on at 5 o'clock, the end of the day, that deathbed conversion will receive the same grace as the childhood conversion. And if you begrudge that, do you not realize the greater grace you have received? Because the deathbed convert went through their entire life without meaning or purpose, always searching for peace and satisfaction, but never receiving it. So whatever trials you may have experienced in your life as a Christian, aren't you thankful that through it all, you had hope, you had joy, you had life, because you had Jesus. My friend, do you see God's kindness to you? That in that sense, you have the greater grace in this life. So don't withhold your prayers and your witness, even from those who seem so far gone, because you too were once there, and God did not give up on you. So don't give up on them. As long as they are breathing, there's still hope, and God in his mercy desires to be generous to them as well. Finally this morning, do you marvel at the goodness of God to you? Do you marvel at the goodness of God to you? Listen, my friend, don't lose the wonder of the divine generosity you've experienced. Don't you ever get used to it. Because while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. While you were an enemy, Christ sought you out and made you his friend. When you were still a long way off, he came running to you. And when you were a whore, Christ made you his bride. Listen, he didn't come to you because he was impressed with you. He didn't rescue you because he saw some potential in you. He didn't pursue you because the good in you outweighed the bad. No, if anything, Everything about you should have repulsed him, enraged him, led him to snuff you out. And yet, he himself bore the wrath of God that we might become the righteousness of God. He poured himself out that we might receive the love of God. Indeed, the scriptures say he has called you by name and said, you are mine. I mean, what kind of radical love is this? You don't deserve any of this. Your only response should be to fall on your face in wonder and ask, who am I? Who am I to receive such love? I don't deserve this. Oh, but I want it. I want it. Thank you, Jesus. My friend, this could be your gift today if you will believe it. If you will receive it. Listen, you are not too far gone. But even if you think you are, remember what Jesus said in this passage. The first will be last. The last will be first. It's not too late. You could be made right with God. Do you believe it? Do you receive it? Or like the character of Salieri, will you reject his kindness 
and be his enemy forevermore. That's the choice before you this morning. So come. Come receive the gift of generosity. The kingdom of God is waiting for you. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.